Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Back in May, a little over six months ago, a young woman who'd spent a bunch of time in China approached our editorial team with an interesting proposal. She wanted to create an official TikTok channel for our company, which was then still called SupChina. Uh, she was already running her own China-focused TikTok feed with a ton of subscribers. You should check that out. Uh, just add Dear China to TikTok. Anyway, uh, as I watched those videos, I was really impressed with her her presentation, with her scripting, as well as her wit and her sense of humor. But above all, I was impressed with her overall approach to talking about China, which for me ticked all the boxes. It was empathetic, knowledgeable, very balanced, uh, interested in in introducing context and approaching all these complicated issues from a whole bunch of different angles. Uh, so all of us who looked at her stuff agreed. We liked it for you know very much the same reasons. Uh, thus was born the China Vibe TikTok channel. Uh, and it's done so well that just last month, we brought its creator on full-time to the China Project. The woman behind the show is Susan St. Denis, Song Denis, as we always said before we met her. And, and I'm uh, delighted to welcome her today on Seneca. Susan, Song Denis, welcome to Seneca. <laughs> Thank you for pronouncing the name correctly. Look at you. You're so cultured. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, are you French? I mean, is it like yeah. Oh, you are. My my dad brags about it all the time. All of the streets in Paris are named after our family. Yeah. We built France. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he's the patron saint of France, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's 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 the dawn. <laughs> yeah, I think I actually yeah, I lived at when well, you just stayed in some like 
bed and breakfast on mm. Rue Saint Denis at one point. Uh, we have a wine too. I think there's a winery. My uh, my dad uses that for special occasions. He brings out the Saint Denis wine. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Uh, so Susan, you have really just hit the ground running since you joined us. Uh, mm. Actually, you joined us just before a spate of holiday taking by some of the folks on our editorial team, uh, and you've had to take on a bunch of like newsletter responsibilities, even as you've kept up the China Vibe TikTok output. So kudos for surviving your your baptism by fire. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hopefully you can enjoy this little holiday for the new year. Anyway, in mm-hmm. the spirit of TikTok, um, we are going to keep the interview kind of short and to the point. But first, since you are a new face around here and unfamiliar to much of the cynical listenership, I imagine, uh, let's talk a bit about who you are and how you became interested in China and in studying Chinese. Yeah, I love telling this story because it's it's been a wild journey. Um, so my dad, he lived in China in the late 80s and 90s. He oh, wow. traveled all over. Yeah, so he was a law professor, um, and he also did some work with various organizations. And I believe it was in 1994, that was the last time he went to China, he took my mom right after they got married to so talk about a test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but they went and uh, they taught, my mom taught English, and my dad continued his, his uh, work as a law professor. And while they were there, they took a ton of photos. And this was what really had an impact on me when I was little. It was always a part of my life, this one little photo book. And I loved looking through it because unlike professionals, what my parents did is they just were wandering around with this Kodak and taking <laughs> photos that just interested them. It wasn't professional. It wasn't like a documentary or anything like that. And it was this really intimate look into daily life in a little fishing village in China that... I know I can't even really remember the the name of where they were specifically, but that really had an impact on me. And I realized a lot of people didn't have that perspective on China. They were looking at China through this lens of politics and economics, business. Meanwhile, I was seeing China through the lens of my parents and through these photographs where it was real people and real lives that were being lived that were similar to my own in so many ways. So when I went into high school, like a lot of weird, awkward kids, I was really into anime and I decided to quit Latin and I wanted to take Japanese. Oh, nice. I told my, yeah, I told my dad though. And he said, listen, if you want to go anywhere in business and you really want to make it, you need to study Chinese. And my high school was a pretty well-known private school and we had a lot of Chinese students. So a lot of pretty prominent families in China would send their kids to my school for our athletic program. Mm-hmm. I actually swam with a lot of them and because of that, they had a great Chinese program. So I started studying Chinese when I was in the 11th grade, went to China for the first time after only one year and studied in Qingdao at a, at a high school there, and then went off to college where I wanted to do fashion design, but then I got into film. And this whole time China was with me. I knew I needed to make sure to integrate China into everything that I did. Once I got to grad school though, um, I didn't get into film school, dreams were crushed. My, you know, it was heartbreaking. I didn't know what to do with my life. My Chinese history professor brought me aside and he was like, listen, you're really good at writing about China. I think you really have a passion for it. I had just gotten back from my second trip to China where I was in Sichuan and he wanted me to get my master's degree in Chinese studies. And I was oh. like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. It was the middle of COVID. I figured why not? And I applied to Florida International University in Miami, packed my bags and moved right after I got accepted. And here I am now. <laughs> I specialized in politics and law and all that good stuff. So it's been a a wild ride from start to finish. Yeah, you're one of those rare people who can turn a master's degree in Chinese studies into an actual China-related job. I know, I did it. I'm so proud of (laughs) myself. (laughs) Uh, 
Oh, amazing. That's, that's, that's a, a very, very different story than, you, you know, what one usually hears uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, there's usually like years of, of anguish, uh, you know, where you don't know what you're going to do with this. Yeah. You, you went right into it. Um, yeah. What drew you to using TikTok though as a platform instead of, of other platforms like YouTube or, or Twitch? I mean, you were already a pretty avid TikTok user, I imagine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, were you so just, it's like, watching, or are you already creating content, or what were you doing? Yeah, so it's it's kind of funny. Before I did the China stuff, I actually had a my account was a comedy account, so I did sketches, oh. and I got I think I had like sixty thousand followers from that. <laughs> and then one day, I did a video on. I think it was on the Shang-Chi movie and why that movie wasn't doing well in China. Oh. And it blew up. I think it has, I think it hit a million views. I can't remember. And from that, people just started asking me questions about China. They realized I I was getting my master's degree in that. And they were like, I want to know more. And they started asking me questions and I started answering them. And here we are. Oh, wow. So it was almost by accident. But I realized TikTok was really valuable because it was short um, I could keep people's attention and I had a young audience. Yeah. The problem with YouTube is it requires a lot of effort in terms of production. I've been debating shifting over there for a little while now, but it just takes a lot of time. And with Twitch, I mean, you just have to know your stuff right out the gate. You get no chance to edit. So right, it's nice right, with right. TikTok as if I make a mistake, I can fix it pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so would people in my generation think, hey, let's put this content on TikTok to reach mm. younger people. I, I think there's something of an assumption I- at play that it needs to be somehow dumbed down. I see now mm. that this is completely wrong. I mean, I actually am, I like TikTok. I, I look at a lot of stuff and there's a lot of stuff that is not at all dumbed down. It's it's actually, you know, it's like straight from the top, very, you know, adult and very smart. So between, you know, little short videos of women with bouncing breasts for some reason they always start people at that it's like it's just really annoying um there's actually some really great stuff but you you certainly don't dump stuff down for your tiktok channel uh for neither the one that you did before you know uh your your private one nor the the uh, china vibe Uh, so where does this erroneous idea come from first of all i mean obviously it's got to be maddening to mm. you or for anyone from your generation that, that there's this assumption in play at all. But where does this come from and, and and what should you be doing instead? Right. So I think there's a difference between dumbing something down and making it accessible. And this is something yeah. that, yeah, a lot of academics struggle with. And I say that as someone who is an academic myself. Um, when you're in, uh, you know, getting your master's or, or getting your PhD, anything like that, you're encouraged to use a lot of scholarly jargon. Yeah. And because of that, it makes it very difficult for regular people who aren't in that field to understand what you're talking about. Not because they're stupid by any means, but just because normal people aren't using those terms, you know, when you talk about theories and all that jazz. Right. So what a lot of people make the mistake of is they think they need to make it really simple and, you know, dumb it down when it's not about that. It's just using common language right? and not making it intimidating. So that was my big goal with my videos out the gate. I've been very open about it where I said I wanted to make this stuff accessible because so much of the information on China is hidden. The good information is hidden behind this wall of jargon. That's very intimidating for regular people that are interested. And I will say the majority of people are very interested in China and want to learn more. They just don't feel like they have access to it. Yeah. The access thing has been Mm. just such a problem. I mean, I feel this real sense of urgency after three years of, you know, for me, 
total disconnection uh, mm. from you know being able to go there. Uh, hopefully, that's about to change. But uh, you know, for so many people whose lives and livelihoods are actually wrapped up in in covering China, thinking about China, uh, um, I think I share that whole despair that they must be feeling over you know what must be happening to people who aren't specialists. Like I, mm. I, I feel like if it's that bad for me. God, just imagine what it's it's like for people who you know who aren't like actively trying to keep up with um, what's happening and trying to interpret what's happening. So, I have to think it's gotten you know even worse for people in your age cohort mm-hmm. who have just spent the last six or seven years. Is these are incredibly formative years for them, right? Uh, who are hearing only how bad things are with China mm-hmm. and never even having had a shot at being able to, you know, spend that gap year there or, you know, take, you know, a year mm. abroad or those really important post-college years where we all, you know, a lot of us just went and kicked around China randomly for a, a while. Um, so, you know, just soaking it in. Um, so that's what has been driving me to want to bring on somebody like you, somebody mm. who can, you know, talk to people where they actually are. Um, what about you? What compelled you to start your TikTok channel about China, and then what drew you to the China project in particular? Mm-hmm. Uh, was there something about how we were covering China that made you think that you'd be a particularly good fit? Right. So, you know, uh, as you were talking about earlier, the struggle that younger people have, you know, for the past six years has just been, <laughs> we're dying. <laughs> That's all that you hear. The alarm bells are ringing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I was joking with my siblings. Um, I'm, I'm home for the holidays right now with my family. And I was joking with them where I was like, anytime I come home, I have to be ready to give a 60 minute interview because everyone wants to ask me questions about China. Right. And my little brother at my youngest brother's like 13. And last night we're out at dinner and it was the whole time he was like, well, Susan, what about this? What about this? And he's a kid and he's wanting to understand these very complicated things about China, but asking in the terminology of a 13 year old. Um, and with the attitude of a middle school boy who spends most of his time on the internet. Right. But he's genuinely curious. So I have to be able to take this complicated information I learn and present it to a kid, um, but not make him feel stupid and not make him feel belittled. So that I did want I do want to bring that up because it's that's kind of the the mindset that I've had. That's what I've had to do my whole time in Chinese studies is I come home for the holidays and I'm explaining it to my 13-year-old brother. Oh, that's great practice. Yeah. It, totally. Yeah. So, you know, regarding what you were talking about about uh, I think I'll, I'll answer the, chi- I think that kind of answers your first question, but with the China project, what I noticed was that y'all were doing that. The articles you were writing were simplified, not, not dumbed down. You weren't talking down at people. You weren't belittling your audience, but you were talking at their level. And although the majority of the people that are listening to y'all using your content, from what I understand, the majority of them are people in the field I can see this opportunity where regular people would want to use y'all's analysis. Um, and it is, it's unique. It's different than other, other platforms that I've seen where, you know, you look at major news networks, they do tend to have this belittling attitude or they go to an extreme that is not helpful. It doesn't help people understand things. It just lets them know, oh, everything's on fire, but I don't understand why. How did we get to this point? The China Project explains the why. And that's missing in a lot of coverage when it comes to China is the why. And that's what I like about y'all. Well, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I will take that. Um, China obviously is not an easy topic to cover Mm. by any medium. And I I cut, you know, anyone a lot of slack because, you know, it's it's tough to do. Uh, But you have to, I mean, like, 
I know for, for me anyway, you have to have pretty thick skin. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. get it from both sides uh, if, if you're trying to sort of be in the middle. Um, but what are some of the unique challenges that come with covering something as complex and controversial as China for you uh, on TikTok especially? Mm, great question. So first of all, I mean, kind of on a funny note, it is it is true. You know, when you're on the internet like I am and your face is everywhere, um, you know, people forget you're a person. Yeah. And so <laughs> I get quite a few interesting comments and then I try to be lighthearted about it and I make jokes. My favorite is I... 50% of people that are watching my videos are like, you're a CIA agent. And the other half are saying that I work for the CPC. So it's like, all right, well, okay. So you fit right in I'm with us. Double, I'm a double yeah. agent. Look at me yeah. go. I know, exactly. That's how you know you're doing a good job. That's true balance. Yeah. But um, yeah, the big challenge I think is just, first of all, fitting all of the information into those videos. Uh, although TikTok allows for you to do 10 minute videos now, those don't really hit the algorithm as well. So right. the challenge is managing to fix fix, fit, very complicated concepts into a three minute video. And that's why on my personal channel, the Dear China one, I do the video series, but China Vibe has presented this unique challenge of how do I explain the current state of China's relationship with the Middle East in three minutes? Sometimes I'm not able to do it. Well, I have the pleasure of of editing your (laughs) scripts and it's amazing. I think you just do a really, really good job. I mean, I think that you were born to be a news person. I mean, you, you, you really pack a ton in and you, you're very efficient about it. And, you know, you, you present the information in the right order so that, you know, it sort of like builds. Uh, mm. You have a good sense of it and you don't bury the lead. You're very smart about that. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you have a natural talent for it. So, yeah. I appreciate it. No, it's because I had a journalist professor that beat it into me. Ah, okay. Oh, it helps when you have, when you study journalism and your professor is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never, I'll are. never forget my <laughs> lessons. <laughs> No, that's great. I mean, yeah, seriously, you, you 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 do a very very good job with those scripts. But you know, now that you have like a pretty sizable audience, I have to think that you are under a lot of pressure. Like you said, you know, your face is everywhere now. Um, you're being quoted. You're being challenged um, on TikTok. How are you dealing with that kind of stress? Hmm. <laughs> um. So it is very overwhelming. Um. I had an experience recently where I went to a kind of a conference, just meeting with other people in the field of Chinese studies that were around my age. And one of the people worked in the U.S. government. Uh, they worked in China policy. Mm-hmm. And they, I come on the call and they see my face and they go, oh my gosh, I love your videos. Oh, great. And it freaked me out. I mean, great, but it also kind of freaked me out because suddenly up until that point, I had been under this naive perception that I was somehow anonymous, that, oh, you know, I'm just making videos for fun. This is all great. And in that moment, I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's an impact people are listening to me and this is affecting how people are analyzing. This could affect the way that people are moving forward with these kinds of things. I'm not, you know, I'm not some crazy big influence or anything like that, but there is, there is a little bit of an impact there. So now when I write my scripts, I have to take that into account and I have to make sure, all right, are you presenting accurate information? Are you being biased? Because if I make a video and it goes viral, I could get a million people watching that video. And that's a million people that I could misinform like that. Right. Um, right, right. And that can be a little bit unsettling. I know on China vibe, it's kind of become a, a running joke with some of the followers where the mistake I often make, cause I read things phonetically, uh, Peking university. Oh my gosh. I keep saying pecking. 
like an idiot oh. and <laughs> everyone makes fun of me for it. But it is like, that's a mistake that it really affects you. Where you're like, Oh man, I did it again. A mistake that normally wouldn't be that big of a deal. But in that context, in that situation, it really can, it, you have to watch every little thing that you put out there, every little detail. So it can make you go a little bit manic sometimes. Peking is a weird, is a weird pronunciation. I'm P, where's, where do you get Peking? I don't know. I mean, Thank you for understanding because yeah, I don't no, understand I totally, it either. Pe, Peking sounds a lot closer to Beijing or to, I mean. That's anyway. what I was saying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah All right. Yeah. We need to, we need to fix that. Ooh, yeah, totally. So I, I reckon there are, are quite a few self-styled China experts today who, who covered mm-hmm. China on, on TikTok or Instagram or on, on some other social media channel. Uh, what is the landscape like out there? Because I don't really know it so well. I know there are some full-on awful rank apologists who think you know China can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then there are also some unalloyed haters who just think that People's Republic of China is the moral equivalent of Nazi Germany or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so what's it like out there? I mean, what's China like on TikTok? Yeah, great question. So on TikTok, you do have those extremes. Um, you have the extreme apologists that drive me up a wall. Yeah. And yeah. then you have, but you also have the extreme haters that just don't want to learn. Um, right. But in the middle, you know, I have found an amazing community. Um, I'm actually going to New York in a few weeks to hang out with some of my fellow China TikToker, TikTokers. We're getting an Airbnb just to hang out. Oh, because, awesome. Yeah, it's so much fun because you just you make you kind of find there's camaraderie in it because we're all dealing with the same things. And I think there are a lot of people that are genuinely on that platform. They saw an opportunity to teach people about China and open a lot of doors and change people's perceptions and provide accurate information. They saw that opportunity and they ran and they took it. Um and so there is a lot of that. And I'm very happy to be a part of that community. But when it comes to those extreme sides, I think the problem, and I'm going to actually speak more on the China haters, because I think they get a lot more attention on TikTok. The problem is that you have people that don't know. They're not educated. Right. So um, the majority of people that are consuming their content are people that don't have a good understanding of China, and they trust them. So these are accounts that people trust And the people with that, knowing that they have the trust of these people, they don't bother to do this in-depth research. They just go off of the first thing that they read off of, you know, Business Insider. And yeah, yeah, and that's that's how they're presenting analysis. And that's how they're presenting information on what's going on, which is really frustrating. Um, Because like I said before, those are the, you know, you get a million views on that. Some of these videos I've seen get 8 million views. And no one corrects them. And then when I correct them, I don't get 8 million views. But I love that you correct them. I, love, <laughs> I, those I are will. Some of my, my favorite things <laughs> that on, on Dear China are when you like take on some Get guys. mad. <laughs> yeah. No, those you, 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 you do great mad. It's, 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 it's a fantastic. I mean, those are the ones I always seek out and watch mm. on, on your, your personal channel. Endless entertainment. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Uh, I'm curious about your perspectives on generational, like American, especially attitudes mm. toward China. I'm because, you know, you're what, are you like a late millennial or early Gen Z? What, what are you? I'm the, I'm the weird, I'm the weird mutt. So I'm 97, which means I'm the last, the last millennials were 96 and the uh. first Gen and Zers are 98. Okay. So I'm the forgotten year. <laughs> the best oh of gosh. both worlds. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So um, in any case, you know, you are somebody who comes from and who is addressing a younger demographic compared to not just, you know, the rest of the China Project team and its traditional audience, but also, you know, compared to all the other China-focused outlets. So uh, what's your take on how these different generations 
uh, view China, their, their sort of attitudes about China and what formed those attitudes. So I, I hear it from both sides. I mean, I hear people who say, you know, that Gen Z is way less like uh, easy, you know, Gen Z is way less in a hurry to condemn China for, you know, mm-hmm. moral whatever, you know, to, to visit moral program on China. But then I also hear that, you know, they're, uh, you know, way, way more eager to do so. It's both. Yeah. I, I think both are true. So I think one of the, I'll speak more on Gen Z because I think that's more of my audience is within that age range between mm-hmm. the ages of like 15 to, to 27. So with those, with Gen Z, the problem that I notice is a lot of them get their information from Reddit, for example. And so their, their analysis on China comes from the perspective of memes. Um, so they, they don't take things seriously um, and they don't know the impact of what they're saying. So for example, mm. I'll talk a little bit about the Winnie the Pooh meme. I think this is a good one. A good sure, example. sure, sure. Yeah. So with the Winnie the Pooh meme, on one hand, yes, a lot of people use it to to criticize Xi Jinping and to draw like, you know, be like, oh, you know, make fun of this political leader that a lot of people disagree with. But it's evolved in the United States um, or in the West in general, where you'll see a lot of younger people use it just on any Chinese person's videos, any Chinese person, anyone talking about China, they comment things like Winnie the Pooh or the social credit meme is another one. Right. Not because they have any understanding or not because they're actually wanting to use it for the intention it was created for when it comes to the Winnie the Pooh meme, just because, oh, China bad. So I'll throw this out because it's funny. And in that, with that, it becomes, it evolves into something that's racist and problematic and really damages people and halts the conversation where they don't want to take it seriously. Right, I, right, right. I mentioned how my experience is explaining China to a 13-year-old. It's like that too, where my brother will come at it from this perspective of memes and jokes. And, you know, for example, like mispronouncing Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping's name just for the heck of it. Yeah. You have to push past that and be patient. Be like, well, wait a minute. Why is that not okay? How do we push past that? Now, now we can learn. But there's that barrier of kind of the, the jokes, not taking it seriously, not realizing the impact of, of words um, and visuals, I guess, if that, hopefully that makes sense. No, it totally, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, so what about gen, I mean, <clears throat> so what about millennials? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is like, like there's a couple of years ago, there was this gigantic, long sprawling debate on, on Twitter about sort of generational attitudes and whether there are marked differences, whether, you know, the millennials were more hawkish toward China, and and if so, why? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are so few Gen Xers sort of represented in uh, like the serious China policy circles? Uh, you know, stuff like that. You know, you know, I, I for for me, I mean, I, I had my own theories. I mean, I know people in my own generation. Are, we are mm-hmm. kind of underrepresented. I'm, you know, solid Gen X, and as such, we had this experience where you know. China was accessible to us right after college. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we all finished college and and just went to to China, and then you know because we were there for an awfully long time, none of us were ever going to get security clearances. So none of us ended up in government. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's that's my my excuse anyway. And, but you know, we we all a lot of us were just kind of feral China watchers, just kind of developing our, our language abilities, kind of independently, uh, just our our perspectives on China, just from you know hanging out there long enough uh people like jeremy goldcorn or bill bishop mm-hmm. or, or myself uh, and so you know the, the gen x crowd but I, I'm, I'm curious about like 
I, I did seem, I did for a while seem to, to, to come away with the impression that millennials were considerably more hawkish and that, um, would, would you, would you, did you have a, a sense of that at all? I agree with you because I think for millennials, their perspective on China is in the realm of business and economics. So mm. I think for millennials, money is something that's very important. I don't mean that critically. I think it's because of the struggles that they themselves face as that generation in terms of access to jobs and wealth and things like that. So I think for them, they look at China as a opportunity, like an economic opportunity. And when mm. things get in the way of that economic opportunity, it becomes hawkish. The videos that do the best with that age group that I've done are things like the Evergrande, the Evergrande videos that I did. Huh. Um, yeah. That age group was really interested in that kind of content when it had to do with economics, stocks, how is China affecting my prospects and my fields? Um, and in that sense, yes, it's more hawkish. And there's, And I also will say... It has to do with, you know, how long have they been uh, consuming media about China? Because then that also closes doors as well. So yeah, for Gen yeah. Z, they haven't been, you know, consuming certain media as long. So they're more open-minded and willing to have more well-rounded analysis presented to them. For millennials, I think more doors are closed. So when they're presented with well-rounded analysis, they're immediately wary of it because their perception is anything that paints China in a not even positive light, but just in a fair light has to be propaganda because up until that point, their perspective has been very negative. Um, and so again, kind of similar to what I was talking about with the meme thing with Gen Z, you have to push past that and be very patient. And then people become more open. Like I almost had to win a lot of my followers trust. It took them a little while before yeah. they were like, oh, you do have good intentions. You're not trying to sway me, if that makes sense. Yeah, wow, that's that's. God, nah, this is this is totally eye opening to me. <laughs> Speaking of which, so I, I'm imagining your average cynical listener out there, you know, my age, even older, uh, doesn't have TikTok on their phone, has mm -hmm. no idea how to access your content. Can you just walk them through that real quick? Like, like, what do you do? Okay, so you download the app TikTok. Okay, you got it on your phone. Now, what do you do to get to you? Yeah, so um, you know you. Well, actually, let me make sure that I'm giving accurate instructions. I'll pull up my own TikTok app <laughs> okay. and I'll walk through it with everybody. So you All open right. up the TikTok app. Um, and if you go, yeah. So when you open it, you're going to be taken to the For You page. And in the right corner, there's a search bar. You can just look up my accounts there. So uh, China Vibe Official is the uh, China Project account. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then my personal one is Dear China. And once you look that up, you'll see my face is pretty obvious It'll yep. show up in the search results. And then you just click and you follow. And there you go. You'll get my content on your For You page. And you can hear my lovely voice and see my face 24-7. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I highly, highly recommend people do this because I think it's just such, I mean, it's a very effective uh, and for me quite novel way of getting across this information. And I think that you'll you'll also uh, be impressed with the way that, that Susan is able to package this stuff in a way that's intelligent but concise and accessible. Uh, so check it out. Definitely check it out. Um, you know, TikTok has obviously been in, in the news a lot recently. It is, of course, owned by ByteDance, uh, mm -hmm. which is headquartered in Beijing. And there are a lot of Americans who have concerns about, you know, how ByteDance collects and uses data. Uh, part of me wants to just dismiss all of that as paranoia, like, you know, oh, no, the evil commies are going to, you know, learn our best dance moves. Um, but I know that's, you know, way too flippant. So in your opinion, are there legitimate concerns? And do you think that the proposal uh, that's now, you know, it's 
getting close to actually being approved, you know, mm-hmm. to have Oracle actually house all of, of, of uh, TikTok's data. Is that going to address those concerns? I think if you're, yes, mm-hmm. having Oracle house the data would address the concerns. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I yeah. actually have one friend who's, who works in this stuff who told me that TikTok would, under that agreement, be like the most locked down social media com- company mm-hmm. in the world. So, yeah, I, I trust that. But I do want to add on to it and say maybe this is just because of my age. And, you know, for me and people around my age, we grew up with social media. So right. I've had my data getting collected since I was 12 years old. (laughs) So to be honest, it's a little hard for me to grasp why China collecting data is such a big deal at the moment, Mm -hmm. because it's that's been happening with American companies. Um, I worked in marketing, so I had to, you know, market to people using their data. I know what data is collected and I it's a lot. (laughs) There's no privacy anymore. So in that sense, I have the data collection thing isn't something that really freaks me out. It's never been something for me that I'm like, oh my gosh, oh no. I think in a way it's almost used as a boogeyman for people that don't know how social media works. It's a convenient yikes to put on your platform to stand on. When it comes to TikTok, there are issues, real issues that we could be talking about, but we're not. For example, you brought up earlier the whole bouncing breasts thing. To be honest with you, there's a lot of really unsettling content on the platform that just does not get addressed. Um, you have parents that are posting their kids on that platform, not aware of or disturbingly aware of who is following them and who is saving the videos of their five-year-old. You uh-huh. have extremists that create whole circles on the platform using coded language, keeping up disturbing videos and distributing things. Um, I mean, you have young men that go on the app and they get sucked into this whole pipeline where they're being told that masculinity is defined by treating women as objects and things like that. Um, there's a lot of really concerning things that happen on the app, but we don't talk about that. The thing that everyone's getting really freaked out about is the possibility of China harvesting our data. From what I understand, there hasn't even been a legitimate case where that has happened. It's just been, this could happen. Right. I understand preventative measures, but it's just, you know, it's weird that these are the alarm bells we're raising. Now I will say when it comes to propaganda that is present on TikTok, um, there are quite a few accounts that I have stumbled across being in the China sphere on the app that are blatantly just propaganda accounts. Sure. But they don't have big followings. They don't have a big reach. They just have large numbers. And most people know what they're looking at. They're like, oh, I don't really care about that. I'm not interested. So if that's why people are wanting to shut down the app, I think that's a real shame because TikTok is such a unique platform for education and learning um, and for building communities around the world. It is a shame to me that we're going to shut all that down for a possibility um yeah i don't i don't think people should turn themselves off from the app because of that yeah yeah no i i i completely agree you know uh i i remember watching this 60 minutes uh a few months ago about and there's this guy he gets i mean this is like sort of a famous quote he's, he's he says you know if you look at the chinese version of tiktok tiktok douyin you know it's all science experiments and mm-hmm. educational stuff and it's really healthy and it's exercise. You know, it's like they keep, and you know, they keep the spinach version of TikTok for themselves and they export the opium version to the rest. It's like really opium. You had to go there. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, 
it was just insane. And it's not even true. I mean, my thing is, you know, the For You page on TikTok is curated to your taste. So it says more about that guy that his For You page is just only the weird erotic stuff. I'm like, what yeah. are you liking, my guy? If, you, <laughs> if you're wanting the education, I'm on the educational side of TikTok. There's plenty of amazing education videos, totally. science videos, all of that. But oh you need God. to be curating your For You page for that. If you're only liking the bouncing breasts, you're only going to get the bouncing breasts. That's right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's amazing how the, the the nourishing stuff that that I get on TikTok. I mean, it's just like the the crafts and the manufacturing of, mm-hmm. of things, the art projects and the science. Experience. I mean, I it's it's amazing. That's what keeps me, you know, scrolling at three a.m. sometimes when I'm feeling ex- insomnia, like we all do. But it is highly, highly addictive. I have to say, mm-hmm. it's oh, it's yeah. it's just my God. That is, I mean, in that sense, it is opium. Whether you're you know on doline. Which is also amazing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you check out Doina is amazing. I do like Doina. Unfortunately, I can't get an account because I I've been trying to find a way to get a Chinese phone number. I'm convincing my friends. I'm like, hey, do you think you can give me a hookup? But at the moment, I'm just on the uh, basic Doina where I don't get to yeah. have a curated page. <laughs> oh well, that's too bad. That's too bad. A shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, Susan, what a pleasure speaking with you. And and once again, just welcome aboard. I mean, you're knocking it out of the park already. We're all thrilled, and I'm totally looking forward to. To hanging out with you at the end of January uh, when yeah. we're all going to be gathering for our little company offsite. So, yeah. It's exciting. I'm excited to meet all of y'all in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you'll see what, what awful people we truly are. <laughs> oh, no. no, it's, no it's, actually, no, the no. one thing about this company, I have, I have to say, there is not a single jerk at this company. Everyone is actually nice. And, and, we all really, really like each other, so which is which is a lot of fun. And I'm Let's here see. to change all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I'll be the. Trick. We're hoping you're gonna make us all TikTok stars. Actually, so. I'll bring gonna, fame, right, fame right, and right, fortune. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. But mm-hmm. first, a quick reminder that as Seneca approaches its 13th year anniversary, it is a perfect time for you to sign up for Access from the China Project. You get free admission to our live events, like our upcoming show in New York on January 24th, where Jeremy Goldcorn and I will be chatting with Ian Johnson, the legendary Ian Johnson. Uh, and you get the also you also get the secret RSS feed that allows you to listen to Seneca three days ahead of everyone else. And of course, you get the terrific newsletter. So ring in the new year with a China Project Access subscription to help support the work that we do. Okay, on to recommendations. Susan, what you got for us? So I, over the break, I've been reading Eldest Son, uh, Joe and Lion, The Making of oh. Modern China by oh, wow. Han Suyin. Um, it's kind of a thing. People know this about me. If, if you know me, you know that Joe and Lion is one of the historical figures I'm the most fascinated by. I think he's an incredibly complex figure. And he's, yeah. in a way, a little bit of a role model in some senses when it comes to diplomacy. So I think this book is really interesting. It provides a lot of unique information. The writing style is very entertaining. And I've just been completely engrossed in it. I think I'm halfway done now. So it's not finished, but so far I think I can confidently say it's a good read if you're wanting to learn more about this enigmatic figure. It's an old book. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, when is it like in the 70s or? I know the one that I have was 95 when that one came out, but I don't know when the book itself came out. Interesting. Yeah. I have not read that. I will definitely check it out though. So for my recommendation, I don't know if you guys listen to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, which is part of the Seneca Network. Uh, there's this segment that they do, which is kind of like recommendations, except it's called Rants and Raves. They either just like, go off on something that bugs them, you know, a rant, or they heap praise on you know something they really dig, a rave. Uh, my recommendation is a 
part rant, part rave kind of one. So uh, a great joy in my life these days is, is like listening to an audio book as I shoot arrows at this indoor archery range. Uh, uh, I've recently come into possession of a Mongolian uh, horn bow. It's, you know, traditional bow made of horn. It's you know, made in the great state of Florida by one of the, the, the greatest living boyers, a guy named uh, Lukash Novotny, who's also a champion horse archer. He's, he's amazing. Anyway, uh, so I listen to audiobooks and shoot shoot that bow and other bows that I have, and it's just great. But, um, you know, what better to listen to while shooting a Mongolian bow than books about Mongols, right? So, alas, my, my Mongol-themed audiobook diet has been pretty uneven in quality. That's thus the part rant, part rave thing. Um so I'll, I won't get into okay, so one of the books was um, Jack Weatherford's book Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, which you know disappointed me in, in various ways. Though I'd say it's still worth listening to. But the other one, the one I want to focus on, is this whole damn series of historical fiction novels uh, written by this British guy named Khan Igledon, I G G U L D E N. Um, it's it's about the Mongol Empire, basically from you know the birth of Temujin, who becomes you know Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan. Uh, through, you know, across, what, like 70 years or something until, like, midway point of of Kublai Khan's career. So he's, like, in the midst of his conquest of China when when that last book ends. Uh, I think there's four of them so far that I've read. Um, They were obviously good enough that I I have continued to, to, to listen to them. But a couple of things drove me absolutely nuts. One of them... Uh, is that he leaves out the story that has the most like compelling plot elements in it, which is right there laid out for him in the secret history of the Mongols, which he obviously read. And it, it's about, you know, Genghis Khan, he has this sworn brother in Anda, a blood brother, uh, this guy named Jamulka, who, you know, on like three separate occasions, they swear like blood loyalty to each other, but then they become mortal enemies. I mean, like, is that... That's an amazing drama right there. But he completely leaves that out, which is just baffling, utterly wow. baffling to me. <laughs> the other thing that drove me crazy is this, that um, there's like one Mongolian phrase that he uses and he uses it all the time in this book. And it's this thing that you say as you're about to step into somebody's gear. You say, which means please hold on to your dog. And it's I remember that phrase from my t- when I went to Mongolia in like 2001 because it was in the l- freaking Lonely Planet phrase book. And so it's like the one phrase of Mongolia, it like totally, I'll bet you anything, he got it from like the Lonely Planet trip, you know, that he took to, to, to Mongolia doing research or whatever. And, you know, it would be like writing a book about Song Dynasty China and having everyone greet each other with, me true mail. it's just like so annoying because it's it's almost certainly something quite modern i don't know maybe somebody can correct me and say that this yes they use that phrase in 13th century mongolia or whatever but until then i'm just going to believe that this guy kind of like you know remembered that one phrase from lonely planet and it's never going to – it's kind of ruin the books for me. <laughs> I needed to do a better job with my recommendation. You went into such great detail. I have to go – I have to check out what you recommended now. <laughs> okay, okay. You, you yeah. painted such a good picture. Yeah, well, it, it, it'll, it'll annoy you also. I mean, sometimes – it's so uneven. There's some really mm. great storytelling in there, and then there's some just clunk. It's like we're just phoning it in. It's just really weird. Anyway, rat, rat over. Um, I did want to – 
mention. So I don't know if it's okay for me to shout this out, but I do have uh, a conference that I'm building. And so I oh, was yeah, no, to give that a yeah. shout out. <laughs> yeah, no, please. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah. Tell yeah. So, it. yeah. So I am happy to say I'm one of the elected ECs for the China America student conference. And so this is going to be our third year running this. Um, it's a part of the international student conferences um, organization. And so I'm going to be inviting 10 students from China, 10 students from the United States, and we're going to be coming to New York or traveling to New York and DC from June 5th to the 17th. Oh, and this awesome. is open to, yeah, it's open to all college students. So to all of the Seneca listeners, if you have a college student that you know that is really wanting to learn more about US-China relations, is wanting to have an impact in that field, please have them check us out. Um, you can go to iscdc.org and you can go to our conferences and you'll see the CHASC link there. And you can check out our locations, learn more about me and my fellow ECs and see what we're all about. It's going to be super exciting. It's a ton of fun. So I'm hoping that we uh, get some applications through this because it's a really amazing opportunity to have some really beneficial conversations and build up the future of US-China relations. That is fantastic. And any help that I can throw your way, you know, you can count on it. Uh, I love this. I mean, that's, it's a start, start, I mean, it, for me, it's like the foundational bridge building, you know, it's like the bricks of, of, of the, the building of bridges, this kind of thing. So exactly. kudos to you. All Thank right. you. Appreciate it. All right. Happy New Year to you, Susan. Happy New Year to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Project and definitely check out China Vibe Official on TikTok. Be sure to check out all the shows also in the Seneca Network. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.